Science Chatters. Hello and welcome to Science Chatters episode four, which we're calling Wellbeing. I'm Andrew Glester. I'm a lecturer in science communication at UE Bristol, and I'm delighted to be joined as ever by Emma Wykamp. I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit, and I'm also here with Claire Wilkinson. I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit with Emma. And uh, we've been away for a little while. Um, episode three was some time ago. I, we we could blame many many things, couldn't we? Really for for this for this delay, but it's largely just life has been, as you may have noticed, listeners, a little different of late. Getting people together has been difficult for eighteen months or so. Anyway, we're back, and that's the most important thing. And thank you for joining us again. And thank you to Claire and Emma for for being with me again. And we've got two um, fascinating interviews looking at research that's come out of the university um, while we've been away, both centred around well-being, personal well-being. One looking at sort of the digital world and um, our online selves, how we communicate and use uh, gaming, in fact, on video games, uh, could be useful in well-being settings or helping us with our well-being and then we'll look at perhaps something which we might more regularly associate with well-being which is getting out into nature and we'll start straight away with one of those interviews because Kim Wagner who is a student on the MSc in science communication here at UE Bristol spoke to Dr Emily Matheson a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research about some research that Dr Emily Matheson and the team had been involved in entitled Game On a randomized controlled trial evaluation of playable technology in improving body satisfaction and negative effect among adolescents, published in New Media and Society. I'm uh, Dr. Emily Matheson. I'm a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research. And I've been there now for two and a half years after completing my clinical PhD with a, an expertise in body image and eating disorders. And so where I am currently now is focusing my attention on developing and evaluating uh, digital interventions for young people and how that might improve their body image. And just for context, what does the Centre for Appearance Research do? Like who's involved in that? What's your main aim? So CAR for short, or Centre for Appearance Research, uh, we have over, I want to say now 40 researchers uh, within the centre. And that spans from PhD students all the way up to professors. The overarching aim is to better understand the appearance related concerns that every individual might experience and how can we support them, whether that's through education, providing interventions, or even at a greater kind of political level. So, you know, policies and lobbying, um, that's what we kind of aim to achieve. And then in terms of the populations that we apply those expertise to, they also differ. Uh, so from the general public all the way through to people who experience uh, visible differences, for example, those who have may, maybe endured burns, um, cleft lip and palate um, surgeries. But we also look at the intersection uh, of body image and other kind of individual aspects. So whether that's um, race, gender, sexuality, um, and some really exciting work coming out recently around colorism. So for us, 
body image is our kind of main focus, but we recognize that body image intersects with so many other aspects of an individual and it's important to understand how they impact that person. Yeah, really interesting. And you recently published a paper on the connection between bloody satisfaction and games. Can you tell me a bit more about that? The research that I've been working on is a part of a greater project with uh, that falls into a partnership between uh, CAR and the beauty industry brand Dove. So we did a series of studies and this included uh, brief animations, an ebook, and the study that you're talking about, Kim, is the playable study. And what these three studies all had in common were that they were brief interventions, or what we're referring to as micro-interventions. And they're designed to provide the user with immediate relief. Um, so in the moment, uh, improvements in how they're feeling. And with respects to these studies, we want to improve how they're feeling about their body image or their appearance. So that's where micro interventions come into play. And they're designed to be brief. So ranging from two to 10 minutes, they're designed to be self-guided. So you implement them yourself rather than relying on a clinician or a teacher to administer. And they are designed to be within digital spaces. So that's really conducive to young people because we know they spend a lot of time in digital environments. And so what better way to engage them with helpful intervention content than meeting them in the spaces that they're already occupying. So in the playable study, what we did was we had a uh, 90 second to two minute uh, game where young people would engage with this and it almost has like a Donkey Kong vibe to it. So you're working your way through this uh, game and as you're working your way through, you're overcoming body image challenges, you're provided with psychoeducation um, with the hope of once you've completed the game, uh, you will have greater body image as well as greater mood. And that's exactly what we found. So after very brief exposure to that online intervention, young people uh, aged 13 to 14, both boys and girls, uh, immediately felt better about their appearance and also had a better mood, uh, which is great as well. And how do the methods look like? How did you find participants, for example? So this was a, a all, an online study, so it was all conducted remotely. And we used a research agency to assist us in collecting the data, which is a really effective and efficient way for conducting many of these studies. So we spoke with a research agency who identified the target population, which was young people aged 13 to 14 and it was both boys and girls. And so they kind of sent out a bit of a, you know, request for young people to join our study. And it was a single session lasting about 25 to 30 minutes. And during that period, they um, answered baseline assessments of those state measures we were talking about. So those immediate assessments of body image and mood. Once they completed those baseline assessments, they moved straight into the game uh, or they were randomized into two other conditions. So we compared the playable to two control uh, conditions. One of those was um, an Instagram or social media post condition where we used the exact same uh, messaging and images as the game, but they were in a static format. 
And then we, the third condition was uh, another control condition where we had a second playable, but with no body image messaging. What we found was that both the body image playable and the body image social media posts were equally effective at bringing about change. And this is a really positive finding because you know, it shows that both the didactic and the static uh, version of uh, the content is effective, but also that we can embed positive intervention content into our social media posts and they're actually effective uh, and you know, influential on young people's body image. So that was a really cool finding as well. Did you also look at how it could maybe prevent negative effects on social media, for example, when they see idealized images? Unfortunately, we did not see any buffering effects of the interventions. So the hypothesis for this particular research was that, you know, in terms of social media, we know that even a brief period of exposure to uh, appearance ideals within social media has a negative impact on young people as well as adults. So the idea was that if we exposed young people to an intervention uh, and then exposed them to some of those negative appearance ideals, uh, we might be able to buffer against those negative effects. And unfortunately, in this case, we didn't see that effect, um, but there's a number of reasons as to why that might be the case. So for example, you know, these appearance ideals are very potent and it might be that a very brief exposure is, is not sufficient in overcoming uh, those negative effects. And also in terms of um, kind of media literacy, the particular intervention that we used uh, didn't specifically show how images are distorted on social media. So there were, it was very much text-based interventions. Um, so some, we, what we think is that perhaps we need that visual representation of how images are distorted to really help young people understand that the images they're consuming are not a true representation of appearance. So providing young people with that exposure and that step-by-step -step process of how images are distorted is really influential in making them more critical about the images that they consume. So there was a few things going on there that uh, might explain why we didn't see those effects. Can I just ask you, why is social media so bad for body image? Yes, well, firstly, it's about the time that we spend. If you think about how much we're on our screens, you know, there's on average girls spend five hours a day on social media. Um, and in terms of the type of content that is on there, unfortunately, it is it's distorted to uh, highlight and showcase uh, this appearance ideal. Often media, whether that's traditional or social media, are constantly telling us that this is the appearance that we need to be achieving. And previously that's been through seen through celebrities, but now we have everyday people or influencers who are perpetuating this uh, ideal. And so, you know, we're, we're told that we need to look this certain way. And if we look this certain way, we're going to be happier. We're going to be accepted. We're going to be loved. We're going to be more successful in our jobs, our occupations. And so it's this perpetual cycle of wanting to achieve this appearance that we know is virtually unattainable for, you know, the majority of people, because that's reflective of 1% of the population. And is there anyway i can create my social media so it has a more positive effect on my body image absolutely this is something that we always encourage uh young people and adults is to 
create a social media account, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, um, that has a positive impact on you. So what that looks like would be unfollowing accounts that promote diet culture. Diet culture being, you know, again, excessive exercise, dietary restriction, um, looking a certain way. So unfollow those accounts and start following accounts that celebrate appearance diversity, whether that's people of different um, races, ethnicities, body types, body shapes, you know, there are a lot of accounts that are emerging now that really celebrate body positivity. Um, and it's it's much easier now to curate a social media account that is uh, has a positive impact on your mental health as opposed to the latter. Being critical consumers is, is the most important step. And trust your instincts. If you're seeing an account that, you know, you find yourself scrolling through and it makes you feel worse or you start to compare yourself to their appearance, it's a sign that uh, you might need to start on following those type of accounts. And does my own social media behavior also influence the people who follow me? For example, if I post more body positive messages or don't use any filters specifically? Absolutely. We're, we're encouraging people to implement these changes themselves. And that's a perfect example of, you know, creating a social media environment that is safe for both yourself and for your friends and doing so um, through positive body image messages. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. And going back to your research, I'm just wondering if there's anything you'd like to do next. Is there any ideal research project you'd like to do? Yeah, in terms of the digital uh, space, I would be, I would love to create almost like a cloud for for people to engage with that helps them, you know, from one end being body image concerns all the way through to eating disorders and have a one stop shop for, you know, engaging with micro interventions, being able to screen themselves being able to be triaged to other support systems if they need, uh, and all of that information being uh, founded through evidence-based practice, because ultimately we need to ensure that what we engage people in is effective uh, at the end of the day. So I would love to create an online space for that, which doesn't yet exist. Uh, so yeah, that is definitely a plan for the future. That sounds like a great idea. I hope that will be reality soon. And my last question, if people want to find your work, know what you're doing, and also keep updated with the Center for Opinions Research, where would they find you? Absolutely. So firstly, starting with CAR, I'd always encourage, uh, well, we're on a podcast. So if you do enjoy podcasts, we have the Appearance Matters podcast uh, that is um, led by Nadia Craddock, Jade Parnell and then Bruna Costa. So they interview a number of researchers within the body image space and then intersecting uh, topics. And then you can always look us up. We are on social media, uh, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And then you can also find myself, uh, Dr. Emily Matheson on those platforms as well. There were a number of things about this study that I found really fascinating. One was just that girls spend five hours a day on social media, which seemed quite a lot in some ways uh, but um, I have teenagers of my own and although I think they don't spend that long uh, on social media certainly some of their friends do so it, it kind of got me thinking about you know well how do we look after our digital well-being and um, I really liked the the sort of tips that came out of this study which kind of focused on 
um, thinking about diversity within your um, the, the accounts that you follow, it seemed like one of the recommendations that came out was to think about how you could curate your own uh, social media accounts to celebrate diversity. And, and that diversity can be in a number of many different ways um, in the context of that study it was celebrating diversity of body image, but it could just as easily be diversity of um, gender, diversity of ethnicity, um, or even just the sorts of things that you find, the broad range of different things that you might find interesting um, to follow and how that might then reflect kind of a diversity of interests. And so it kind of leads to that question, you know, how, how do you how do you encourage people to think about and celebrate diversity within social media, which perhaps is promoting particular uh, particular ways of thinking? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. And I liked the idea of sort of curating your social media to be a little bit more positive. It's something that I think I'd quite like to do um, in my own personal life. I think one of the things that interested me about that idea is how much some of our social media may kind of curate against us and how much some of the algorithms on some of the social media that we might use would allow us to shift away our focus in new directions. Um, I was thinking of a young relative that I've got who takes some absolutely beautiful pictures of trains and it's all over his Instagram account. And I'm always so hesitant to like them because I imagine I'll just be bombarded with train images from every account account going in future. So I think um, I was quite interested in that. And I'm not sure if that's something that the car team are necessarily exploring but if you have that desire to change what your social media is potentially presenting you with, how far can you go with that personally? Or do you still get lots of other um, images and accounts sent to you that perhaps aren't necessarily the ones that you're wanting to follow at that time? So that was really interesting. And I thought another thing that was quite interesting in um, Emily's conversation was the way in which they're using those micro interventions for for positive reasons and to counter some negative um, misinformation and images that people might be getting through their social media accounts. And I was kind of wondering about ways that you could reverse that as well and actually use the the power of social media to convey um, perhaps scientific information or health-based information for positive goals too. And I know that's something the Centre for Appearance Research team are definitely looking at and working on as well. But I was quite interested in the the kind of opposite side of that coin and how that could be considered in maybe a public health setting or a behaviour change setting or an environmental setting too. So yeah, but that five hours a day on social media, I was quite surprised by that as well, Emma. But I can see how that could happen. It just, uh, you know, creeps through your day in different spaces. So yeah, interesting. The other thing that kind of was interesting about those micro interventions was the way in which they were trying to encourage people to be more critical um, and and the use of the gamification approaches to encourage engagement with the micro interventions I thought was quite interesting and, and also has perhaps some learning that's relevant to science communication. Definitely a lot of overlap there with citizen science um, as well and approaches such as that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of gaming, it has to be said. Um, <laughs> I, certainly, I, joking apart, I think it's a very good, uh, can be a very good um, part of people's lives to do gaming for well-being. You know, just taking time out to do a bit of gaming with other people particularly can be a really positive experience for people and young people. Um 
do find a, a lot of positives out of that. I think it's it's you know among all the negative press that we see about video games, the negative press we see about social media, to hear some you know positive benefits from it and how we can use these things in a positive way, I think is really really good thing. Is it a form of meditation for you then, Andrew? Gaming? Uh, <laughs> until I lose, yes. It is. <laughs> I read a wonderful book by Dr. Pete Etchells from uh, the University of Bath called Lost in a Good Game. It's all about, you know, the benefits of, of video gaming and things. And I, it, the key message from that, certainly for me, was that gaming with your children, gaming with your friends can be a really positive social experience. And it doesn't have to be something that's isolating. It can be a really positive thing. And there are a lot of video games that are being made now, which are, you know, about life experiences. You know, there's a there's games about dealing with grief and things. And it, it really can be a positive experience for people. And I think, you know, taking lessons from that and this research, I think, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. Not not that all of it's good, let's face it, you know. And when I let in a last-minute goal on FIFA, I wouldn't say I was the happiest <laughs> man alive. But when I score a last-minute penalty, that's all good, right? <laughs> I think there's certainly huge learning to take from those sectors and um, in terms of the communities that they create, um, definitely things there that we can look at from a science communication perspective, so... Really good to see that CAR are exploring some of these things in regards to appearance research. Absolutely. And uh, we will now turn to the outside world and what's outside our doors, because Izzy Gordon, who was at the time of recording this, a student on the Wildlife Film and Media module here at UE Bristol, studying for her degree in wildlife ecology and conservation science, is now beginning her MSc in Science Communication. And she spoke to Dr. Issy Bray, the Associate Head of Department for Research and Knowledge Exchange in the Department for Social Sciences and Senior Lecturer in Public Health in the School of Health and Social Wellbeing about some research that has come out of the unit in the Journal of Public Mental Health called Exposure to Green Space and Prevention of Anxiety and Depression Among Young People in urban settings, a global scoping review. Now, when I was like looking through your research, some of the stuff that really stood out to me was some of the statistics. For example, like one in five young adults often have symptoms of depression. Why is this such a big statistic and what is it about this age group? Obviously, anxiety and depression are major issues across modern society, in all countries and across all ages. Traditionally, it's been found that women tend to report symptoms of mental health problems more than men but that may just be underreporting or lack of men perhaps being less aware of their mental health issues because actually suicide which is like the tip of the iceberg firstly just to say that this is a problem across the whole age range but we know that particularly at the moment it's an increasing problem amongst young people and it's very concerning, the effects of COVID and lockdown on young people in particular. So although this work was planned pre-COVID, it's very, very timely. And the whole issue of green space is something that we've all become a lot more aware of, particularly in urban settings, which is what our research was about. So the importance of access to good quality green space, particularly under lockdown. 
one of the quotes that I, well I say it's a quote, one of the things that I read that I really liked was that going outside creates effortless mindfulness which allows mm. young people to have a sort of a break from the distractions of modern society. Mm. What is it about being in nature that brings about this feeling of like relaxation and tranquility do you think, especially with young people? Well I think it is just that, I think it's that we know that mindfulness and practices such as yoga are really helpful um, but they're actually quite hard to practice. You need, you know, yeah, you need to put in a lot of effort and a lot of us try to do yoga but aren't very good at the sort of emptying our mind bit of it. Being in green spaces, um, we're surrounded by nature, even in cities, which is wonderful. And I think that that takes us away from our problems and helps us to be mindful, helps us to be in the moment. It's about the, what's surrounding us, maybe watching leaves falling from a tree or watching a sunset whilst you sit in the park or just seeing a squirrel run up a tree. Those sorts of things, they take our attention. They're nice things to watch and it makes us forget about all the things that tend to worry us in life. But on top of that, what was really interesting from talking to the young people who were helping us to guide our, our research was that it's very much the absence of things like traffic, social media, noise lots of other people. So although what we find in the literature is more studying things like the presence of nature or activities that might happen in green spaces, actually, I think it may be as much the absence of some of those other aspects of modern life that make us stressed. And you say that like things like practices like yoga and stuff are actually quite hard for us to get our head around. And actually going mm. into nature and making ourselves relax is probably a lot harder than we think. Do you therefore think it should be like incorporated into schools almost as like a part of the curriculum to teach people how to, from a young age, how to properly use nature to their, their advantage? Very much so, yes. So I think at the moment what you'll find is that some people who perhaps grew up in um, less urban environments have always enjoyed being in the countryside. They perhaps recognise the benefits of that and they will seek out those benefits if, if they feel they need them. I absolutely agree. I think that's not at the moment necessarily available to everybody and it really should be. That's a huge inequality. And I think that the best way to tackle that is exactly as you say, through schools. So yes, I mean, schools do nature walks and things like that with little ones. But I think it's really important that as children get older, that they can have opportunities to have more exciting, challenging experiences, maybe getting out of the city, going to natural environments. Because that's what, as you get older, that's what you need. You need to be challenged. You need to be a little bit have a sense of trepidation and then um and then you know be really pleased with yourself when you've achieved something that perhaps you're a little bit scared of like maybe canoeing down some rapids or doing a bit of rock climbing or something that really needs to be available to everybody not just those who are lucky enough to live in the countryside no i agree because i've definitely noticed here whilst i've been at uni i've obviously mixed with a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and there are definitely mm. i mean i've lucky enough to grown up in the countryside surrounded by a lot of nature but there's a lot of people who have grown up in in the centre of cities who kind of don't realise what the opportunities are and sort of mm. what you can, what's outside your door and actually like what it can mm. do for you. They just, they have no comprehension of what it can, how it can benefit you. And that really mm. surprises me. And I think that's really, it's quite sad. It's a big, that's a big shock. But then I also wonder whether actually everybody gets the same benefit out of being in green spaces. I mean, it's definitely something I would promote for everybody, but I think we need to do more research on how perhaps different people's personality types or different people's childhood experiences might affect how they best get benefit from being in green or natural environments. Because it could be that some people need that sort of sense of excitement to go for, I don't know, a mountain bike ride or something, really push themselves, whereas other people benefit more from a very quiet walk in a secluded area. 
One of the things also that I read when I was looking at your research was looking into how you can incorporate green spaces in urban environments and in building and like development. Things I've observed when I've travelled have been green walls, green roofs. So I went to Hong Kong and it was like a concrete city with, you know, loads of flyovers everywhere, loads of traffic. But I was amazed, you know, they'd have a lot of it's quite steep and they would have lots of cement sort of retaining walls holding up things. But over that cement, they would grow stuff. And I mean, the, the range of studies we looked at was huge and some of them were experiments sitting people in a room with a pot plant which was kind of funny on one level but it's 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 important isn't it (laughs) yeah definitely so you think even small little things like having just plants and visual things surrounding you even that would improve people's mental state there was research done a long time ago looking at the views of people who were in hospital and those people who had green views recovered better from their surgery or their illness than people who didn't have green views and i know i benefit a lot from being able to look up out of the window and see trees in the park behind me. Personally, in my own experience, that's been something that I've benefited or I've certainly appreciated more the older I've got. So I'm quite interested in that as well, whether you start to really appreciate these things more as you get older, I, I don't know. I Yeah, I was thinking about this whilst I was like reading through this, and I definitely think there is, in young people, an underappreciation of nature. I think it's almost sort of not perceived as like uncool but sort of not really something you think of on your radar that you need to do I think you kind of associate maybe being outside when you get older when you retire you know Mm. when you've got children that kind of thing and I don't think young people really understand actually what it does for you so I think it's Mm. almost this needs to be promoted a lot more Mm. um actually like the benefits that it can bring to someone especially someone who's studying 24-7 or working 24-7 One of the students I spoke to said that they thought that universities, that the um, sort of welcome fair or any information given out at the very beginning, should highlight all the green spaces, either on campus or even if it's not a campus university, there are always green spaces in the city and that those should be highlighted and, you know, people should be encouraged to use them, go and use these spaces. And that's such a simple but wonderful idea. Do you think that the current pandemic in any way will have a shift people's perceptions of the outside? having been locked in so much, do you think younger people are beginning to understand the importance at all? I think generally, yes. There's a a huge change in level of appreciation for green spaces in cities and how important it is to maintain those and to make sure that they're not used for anything else and also to to invest in them so that they're good quality green spaces. And I, I think it's important that they offer something for everybody, for all age groups, so that they're you can have a mix of uses and different generations because I think that's really important as well. Do you think the amount of green spaces will grow in the future? The key thing there I suppose is whether they are included more in planning of future developments and so we very much hope that research that's going on at the moment like ours will influence the requirements for planners building future developments, housing developments, because the bits of the cities that are already built there's not a great deal we can do to expand the green spaces. I think there's a lot we can do to improve their quality and their accessibility and to make, to do more in the way of, um, yeah, things we were talking about before, like green walls, green roofs, street trees. There are little things we can do, planters and streets. But in terms of bigger green spaces, it has to be designed in from the beginning. And then I think there are cultural things. So there's been quite a lot recently talking about how BAME people don't necessarily identify, they don't see role models in terms of people using the English countryside. 
they don't see that that's for them and that's because it's how it's portrayed and so there's a lot of work to be done there to make sure that our national parks and our other natural spaces are there for everybody and everyone can identify with them and see that that they and, and feel that they are welcome and they want to go there and then the other area that we found sort of lacking in the literature was um, less developed countries so the majority of the studies came from the uk the us lots from japan some from scandinavia but we although we were hoping to do a global literature review we found really that the literature is dominated by more developed countries and yet there are a lot of young people living in urban settings in developing countries who have the same mental health problems but it's just not being studied in those countries the access to green space obviously isn't considered as a sort of useful intervention to be studied in those countries or maybe it's that there's lack of funding in, in those countries to, yeah. to, to do the research you know and it's probably a kind of hierarchy of needs thing that if there's not enough education or not enough food or not enough water or people aren't feels feeling secure and safe then actually talking about access to green space probably doesn't feel like a major priority so do you hope that kind of following on from the pandemic it almost like it's kind of opening a door for this kind of research and sort of opening sort of a way for this to be quite make people aware and quite a big deal Yes, I hope so. I think it's perfect timing. And I, for me, it ties in well as well with a sort of sustainability agenda. I think we need to recognise that we need to and invest in those green spaces and natural environments, protect biodiversity, reduce climate change, because we need that for our mental health. And we have an absolute mental health crisis going on. We did before COVID and we certainly do now. And my strong belief is that we, we need to, as a society to recognise that we need those green and natural environments for our own health, yeah. as well as of course protecting them for their own right, because they're yeah. we, because we shouldn't be destroying the world. <laughs> so I thought this uh, interview was really timely. Obviously, with COVID, we've all been, I think, thinking about the role of green spaces in our lives in perhaps a slightly different way to yeah. pre-COVID for some of us. So it's been interesting to see the way that we've appreciated parks and green spaces and areas that we've had access to during points of the lockdown. Um, firstly, just to get some exercise and fresh air when that was what was permitted later on to socialise um, and to meet people. So I think it's really increased the focus on how we think about these um, types of spaces in our in our personal lives. And I thought there were lots of really interesting things in this conversation about how we seem to connect to green spaces at different points, be that in our lived experiences, in our social situations, depending on what age we are and the communities we might be based in. So lots to think about there. And, and for me personally, the other thing um, that I was thinking about was there's been a lot of research focus recently on green spaces such as parks. And for me, I think the setting that I really resonate with is beaches and coastlines and marine environments. That's where I go and have that peaceful experience that, that Izzy was describing, as well as natural areas and parks and forests. So I'd be really interested to see how some of that might connect through to those types of environments as well. And whether, you know, increases in people doing things like wild swimming, for instance, um, if research is starting to emerge around some of those topics too. So yeah, lots to think about with this one. When I first moved to Bristol about... Um well, seven years ago now, I think, I did a piece of research for the National Trust about people's engagement with green spaces in Bristol. And it was a lovely way to be introduced to the city, actually, because it, it introduced me to every single green space in the city. And there, there are a lot of them 
um, in this town. And I think if people, wherever you're living in the world, there, there, there is some form of nature within reach, I would hope. We're very fortunate in Bristol to have quite so much green space around. And I think just taking a bit of time out, even if you've been living in a city, living in, a, in an area for a long time, just taking time out to look at new green spaces that new to you green spaces that you didn't know about. I certainly know that conversations that I had with people who've been in Bristol for a lot longer than I had, who'd lived here all their lives and telling me that they didn't know of green spaces which were within a mile of their house. I think that point around knowing where opportunities are is a really important one and sometimes you might live in a community and not be aware of where there is a public walkway that you can use or how you can access some of these spaces and again I think linking back to that first conversation there's also nice apps that you can download now to see where you can walk in a particular area or good hikes or green spaces so again I think technology is sometimes encouraging us outside. Well I certainly didn't need any convincing that the natural world was was an important part of life it's always been an important part of my life particularly as a, as a really keen walker um cyclist you know general outdoor enthusiast so I kind of went into this thinking well of course um you know I, I, and yet the interview still held quite a number of I thought you know quite thought-provoking areas and, and areas that you could think about and and have resonance and messages for a whole host of different sectors and one of the things I, I thought fascinating was the discussion of how different cities might be in different parts of the world and the ways in which some urban environments are using kind of vertical walls or vertical farming as one means of well maybe not intentionally but the effect is of, of making the city appear and feel greener um, so I thought there were some interesting things that were kind of relevant from a, a planning perspective but I think as a keen walker the thing that perhaps most resonated with me was the ways in which some groups within society do and don't feel comfortable in the outdoors particularly outside of cities and I've been kind of interested in the Facebook account called Black Girls Hike which has been actively promoting and encouraging people of colour to uh, go out to the national parks for example um, and I thought that was it was an interesting point made in in this particular piece about the ways in which different groups through their early experiences their experiences in school may or may not feel invited into the countryside that's something that we need to encourage and need need to think about uh, need to address perhaps you know how do we help people to understand what's outside their door or what's outside their city what's out you know what's out there that they can engage with i'm talking of curating your uh, social media accounts maya rose craig who's known as bird girl um who is just doing a, a wonderful job not in, only in terms of science communication about birds and nature but in terms of um, diverse communities enjoying birding um, around the world and there's a there's a few accounts like We've had quite a number of studies now flagging up that certain informal science learning spaces such as science centres and museums aren't necessarily that accessible and they can also be very expensive to attend. And it made me think about an experience I had at the weekend. I went to um, a local forest to have a walk and it was really well set up. There were car parking facilities quite expensive to pay and park and when I came back I was kind of thinking about this question of how accessible is it and when I looked up 
sort of local public transport links, what would be a 15 minute car journey and a a fee for parking turns into about an hour on a bus to actually visit and get there in a timetable that isn't necessarily that regular. So I think there's still a need to really explore some of the barriers that might exist for people, both practical, cultural and social barriers. So lots of potential ways, I think, that this could be considered further with a lens of equity, but also science communication. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll delve deeper into some of those in future episodes of Science Chatters. And it is wonderful to be back with you. It's really nice to have our students back and talking to researchers. Um, We've obviously all been working really hard throughout the pandemic, as have our students, so in slightly different environments. But it's it's nice to see these opportunities for our students to collaborate with researchers happening again uh, and people having a little bit more time to do that. Yeah, it's a very good thing. And it means that we'll be back with episode five. Well, sooner than this episode four came around, we'll promise you that we'll be back sooner than that. We were perhaps a little ambitious about how uh, the pandemic was going to pan out in episode (laughs) three. (laughs) Yes, perhaps so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Hoping for the best, is there? (laughs) True. Well, we'll we'll hope for the best. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back very soon, I hope. Science Chatters.